going to resume in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33. There should be an outline in your bulletin. Uh, We are on a series on the uh, Christian family, and um, there are full printed manuscripts available at the exits. They're kind of a coral color today, and then those are also on the church website and The audio will be up there shortly after the uh, morning service as well. This is part two of looking at Christ-like love for your wife. And uh, if you go, oh great, I'm not married or I'm not a guy. uh, Well, we all are called to love one another. So this applies to everybody. Uh, If you know Jesus, even if your husband is your enemy... Jesus says, love your enemy, so you're not off the hook. Uh, I hope that's not true, but anyway, this is God's inspired word for us, so please follow along. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we're members of his body. Then he cites Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. You know, kids sometimes have uh, not only humorous, but wise, maybe unknowingly wise insights on love and marriage. Uh, When he was asked, how does a person decide who to marry? Alan, who is 10, said, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports then she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. (laughs) Kirsten, who was 10, said, No person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) Maybe she was a Calvinist, I don't know, but... uh... What do most people do on a date? Well, Martin, who was 10, had some youthful insight. He said, on the first date, they just tell each other lies, and that usually gets them interested enough to go for a second date. (laughs) Is it better to be single or married? Anita, who's nine, says, it's better for girls to be single, but not for boys. Boys need someone to clean up after them. And Kenny, who's seven, says, it gives me a headache to think about that stuff. I'm just a kid. I don't need that kind of trouble. (laughs) 
Why love happens between two people, Jan, who is nine, says no one knows for sure why it happens. I heard it has something to do with how you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. And Harlan, who's eight, says, I think you're supposed to get shot with an arrow or something, but the rest of it isn't supposed to be so painful. (laughs) Well, what is falling in love like? I like Roger's insight. He's age nine. He says, it's like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. (laughs) And Greg, who's eight, says, love is the most important thing in the world, but baseball's pretty good, too. And then when is it okay to kiss someone? Well, Pam, who's seven, says when they're rich. (laughs) And Kurt, same age, is a little more cautious. He says, the law says you have to be 18, so I wouldn't mess with that. (laughs) Howard, who's eight, is a bit more responsible. He says, the rule goes like this. If you kiss someone, then you you should marry them and have kids with them. It's the right thing to do. And then Jean, who's 10, says, it's never okay to kiss a boy. They always slobber all over you. That's why I stopped doing it. (laughs) And then how do you make a marriage work? Well, Ricky, who is 7, says, tell your wife she looks pretty, even if she looks like a truck. (laughs) And Bobby, who's 9, says, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget that you never take out the trash. And Roger, who's eight, says, don't forget your wife's name. That'll mess up the love. (laughs) Well, we're considering the question, what does Christ-like love for your wife look like? And uh, we saw last time that sacrificial, purposeful, Christ-like love should characterize every husband's relationship with his wife. And by way of review, and you can... Read the details in last time's message if you'd like. We saw that first, love is the priority for husbands. And second, love is possible for every husband because God commands us to do that. And then thirdly, I defined love as a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. Uh, And I got that definition right out of our text, that love is self-sacrificing, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, Love is caring, just as a man nourishes and cherishes his own flesh, as Christ does the church. Love is a commitment, as implied by the command to love, as well as by Christ's covenant love for us. He... uh, committed himself to us, and then just by the analogy of the body, that we are members of his body and we're all committed to care for our own bodies. And then love shows itself, meaning it's not just words but action, because Christ gave himself on the cross for us. He um, obeyed the Father in doing that. And then finally, love seeks the highest good of the one loved, just as Christ died for us, as it says, so that he might sanctify us and cleanse us to present us to himself in all our glory, just as holy and blameless, so a husband should love his wife. We also looked at the first of two contrasts 
of 10 that I want to develop to help us understand what a husband's Christ-like love for his wife looks like. And the first was simply that love is sacrificial. It is not selfish because selfishness is always the number one enemy of love in a marriage or any form of love. And then second, we saw that love is purposeful. It's not aimless, effortless ecstasy as the world sometimes presents it, but your ultimate purpose in loving your wife is to uh, build her up in Christ so that she's holy and blameless. So this morning now, I want to finish with the other uh, contrasts. And the third contrast is that love is realistic. It is not blind. Married love aims at this high ideal of a bride who is holy and blameless, and yet at the same time it has to be realistic, meaning a godly husband has to accept his wife for who she is uh, and then patiently work with her to help her become all that God intends for her to be. And that's true in any relationship that we have to accept one another where we're at and then hopefully help one another grow to be more like Christ. But the, the fact that a wife is not perfect should not detract her husband from his steadfast love for her. Now, as we saw last time, husbands then are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And you think about, well, what kind of church did Christ love? Was it perfect? Well, obviously, no, not. Um, not even close. It's interesting that at the Last Supper, as he is about to go to the cross, Jesus predicts Peter's denials. He predicts that all of the other apostles will flee and abandon him, which they did a few moments later in the garden. Um, And as you read through the New Testament, we sometimes idealize the early church. Oh, I wish we could go back and have a New Testament church. Have you read the New Testament? Every single letter is written about problems in the church. Um, These were real people with real problems, relational conflicts, uh, doctrinal issues, all sorts of things going on, and yet that's the church that Christ loved. And then just look at your own life since coming to salvation. Have you walked perfectly with Christ? Have you always loved him with a fervent love with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, If you say you have, you have another problem called hypocrisy because not a one of us has. We've all fallen and stumbled and failed the Lord uh, many, many times. And yet, in spite of that, thankfully, we're assured of his steadfast, uh, eternal love for us as his people. What a blessing. And now as husbands, we are enjoined to express that same love for our wives Uh, Whenever I've done premarital counseling, one of the questions that I have couples fill out on a form is, uh, knowing that no one is perfect, would you list five faults of your prospective mate? Now, I'm not trying to get them to find fault with each other, but I'm trying to find out, are they walking into this thing blind or are their eyes wide open to what they're getting into? And sometimes I have had people say, I can't think of any. Well, hello. 
uh, you are going to be in for a rude awakening after the honeymoon, if not before, because, uh, you know, every one of us has faults, and we need to go in there with our eyes open, realizing I am marrying a sinner. In fact, there's a good marriage book called When Sinners Say I Do, uh, and, uh, and that person is marrying a fellow sinner because I am one as well. And so we need to go in realizing that. Often, almost always, when couples come later for marriage counseling, invariably they're doing this. They're blaming the other person for their faults. He blaming her, she blaming him. And just speaking for a moment to husbands, because the text does, Uh, You're marrying an imperfect wife, just as the church is imperfect, and yet Christ committed himself with his eternal love to this imperfect body of people, and that's what Christian marriage is to reflect. And uh, so as you love her, you have to set the example You can't blame her for her problem. You have to look to yourself and say, wait a minute, I have failed to love her as I should. How can I grow in love for her? Because you can't expect her to become what you're not. You have to set the example. A fourth contrast is that love takes the initiative. It doesn't depend on a response. And the Bible is so clear that God, thankfully, took the initiative Uh, in loving us and drawing us to salvation. Uh, There is a widely mistaken view in the Christian world that somehow God looked down through history, he saw who would choose him, and he put them on the list. And uh, that's who he saved. That view is false because that would mean that God saved us based on something good he saw in us, our wise choice of Christ. The Bible is clear, no, God chose us while we were yet sinners. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or as Paul goes on to say in Romans 9.16, so then it, and in the context it is salvation, does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, and thankfully, his love took the initiative with us. Otherwise, we'd all be still in the world. So what that means for a husband is, you have to take the initiative in demonstrating self-sacrificing love for your wife, uh, regardless of her response. And if you think, well, you know, marriage is a 50-50 deal, isn't it? No, it's not. In fact, marriage isn't even 75-25. Marriage is 100%, where you give yourself in love for your wife and uh, don't uh, change that, even if she's being difficult or disagreeable. Uh, If you respond to her anger with anger, it just escalates and alienates. I I encourage everybody everybody to memorize 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9. Now, if you're familiar with 1 Peter, you know that 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, is directed to wives and husbands. And then in verses 8 and 9, Peter follows up, and he says, to sum up, 
all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And so if you trade insults, you're just causing further alienation and disintegration of a relationship. If when someone insults you, you respond with a blessing, it de-escalates it and can lead to reconciliation. And so love takes the initiative to bless the other person. It doesn't wait for the other person to go first. A fifth contrast is that love is consistent. It is not conditioned on performance, and that's the outworking of this previous point. Love takes action even when it's undeserved. Um, And it's got to be over the long haul because I've heard husbands say, well, if she'd just curb her anger or if she'd just be more submissive, you know, I think I could love her as I should. Well, those aren't conditions that you're supposed to wait for in order to love her. Your job is to love her. It's not to get her to submit. It's to love her as Christ loves his church consistently, and Christ loves an often disobedient, disagreeable church. Um, Now, that doesn't mean you never confront your wife concerning her sin. And frankly, a lot of husbands err here. Uh, They don't want to take the role of correcting or confronting. And so if the wife explodes, the husband runs for cover to buy himself some peace. And he doesn't want to deal with that situation. Or sometimes if the wife explodes, the husband retaliates with stronger force to say, I'm going to show her who's boss, and you get into this huge, huge fight and conflict. Neither approach is godly. A Christ-like husband should not be quarrelsome. He should be kind, patient, able to teach, able to speak the truth even if he's wronged. That's 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. Um, But he gently, faithfully comes alongside his wife and, and teaches her, you know, take anger. Your anger doesn't glorify God. And uh, I want to help you be a godly woman. Can we see what God's word says about how to deal with your anger? And by example of not getting angry when she's angry, and by patiently teaching, he helps her to overcome that, that problem. And that's how Christ deals with us. He, he loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. And so he helps us to grow and teaches us through his word how to be obedient. A sixth contrast, love is a total sharing of life. It is not two independent lives. Again, look at verse 28 and 29. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Now, Paul is not encouraging us there, as modern psychobabble tells us, to learn to love ourselves so we can love others. That's nonsense. We all love ourselves very well. What Paul is pointing out is normal people love their own bodies enough to take care of them and to protect them. 
Now you're to extend that to your wife because he says your wife is a part of your body just as we, the church, are members of Christ's body. And he goes on to say in verse 31 that a husband and wife are one flesh. And so his point is simply, you've got to view her as you view your own body. And when you love her, you're loving your own body. And it's an amazing concept. I think Paul is probably going back to the garden and the fact that God created Adam out of the dust of the ground But he didn't create Eve out of the dust. He created Eve out of Adam's body to show us that the two are uh, one flesh. As Adam said, here now is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And there are a number of important implications from that. For one, husbands and wives should put aside all competition. You don't compete with your own body. You cooperate with your own body. And if it isn't working right, you try to get it working right. But I see so many husbands and wives that compete. And I'll tell you a little pet peeve I have, okay? I hate it at weddings where couples smear cake in each other's face. You know why? They're starting off their marriage competing. Let's see who can get the other one the most. That's a bad way to start a wedding. I want to cooperate with my wife. I, you know, want to say to her, hey, we're on the same team. And if you lose, I lose. And if you win, I win. So let's get together and figure out how we can win against the enemy. You got to be teammates, not competitors. Um, If your wife is hurting, that means you're hurting. She's part of your body. And again, I see so many who are insensitive, you know. If you just say, Well, that's your problem. You work it out. You're ignoring your own body. And nobody does that, you know? You ever hit your thumb with a hammer and say, you stupid thumb you got in the way, I'll teach you. And you hit it again. No, that's not how you deal. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, you go, ah, you know, I got to get some ice on this quick and and bring healing. And if your mate is is hurting, your role is to come alongside and try to bring healing, not to rub it in. If you're rubbing it in, you're competing. Um, another way that we fail to honor our wives as our own bodies is many husbands get engrossed with their career, where, you know, they're, they're workaholics, and that's their whole life. A number of years ago, I read about a reporter who asked the new head coach of a professional football team, if his wife objected to his 18-hour work days. And he said, I don't know. I don't see her that much. Well, I don't know if they're still married. I'd be surprised if they are. But certainly he was not sharing his life with his wife as Scripture would have him to do, as if she were his own body. And uh, so I think the analogy that your wife is part of your own flesh, your own body, implies Uh, A lot of time together, a lot of time spent together as husband and wife, sharing both sides of life together. A seventh contrast is that love is responsible and not irresponsible. Um, Verses 29 and 30 say, Husbands must nourish and cherish their wives just as 
Christ also does the church, he says, because we're members of his body. And I think that demonstrates at least two ways that husbands need to be responsible. First of all, responsible love provides. It's not lazy. The the word nourish there has the idea of feeding, and uh, we all feed our own bodies, uh, sometimes too much, but uh, every every husband is responsible to feed, to nourish his wife. And, of course, that refers to material provision. First uh, Timothy 5.8, Paul says, If a man doesn't provide for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. Pretty strong words. But beyond that, I think it also implies that a husband cares for his wife's total well-being, emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every way. Uh, I think at the very least on the spiritual front, that means husbands should take the initiative in bringing their wife to a good, sound, Bible-teaching church. Again, I've seen so many husbands, oh, the wife wants to go to church. Okay, I guess I'll go along. Uh, They're not taking the initiative, and they're not being spiritually discerning to, to decide, is this a spiritually healthy church where... The word of God is taught and the gospel is preached. So a husband should take the initiative. I think also uh, husbands should take the initiative in reading the Bible and praying with their families. Uh, We, when our kids were growing up, used the dinner table for that purpose. But um, read good Christian books, talk together about those, and talk about the spiritual life together of How are you doing? Any struggles? Here's how I'm struggling, or here's how I'm doing. And uh, maybe occasionally go to a good spiritual life or marriage conference together just to kind of get renewed and get your focus back where it ought to be as a couple. And then secondly, responsible love cares. It's not callous. Uh, Love cherishes, Paul says, and that word in, in the Greek means warmth. And it pictures a a mother out in the cold with a little infant, and she tenderly holds that infant to her chest to keep the baby warm from the elements. And um, it stems from the analogy, again, of the wife being part of the husband's body. If the weather gets cold and your hands get cold, you you instinctively say, man, i got to get warm, you know, my hands are freezing. And you warm them up because you care. And that's the picture here, again, that a husband tenderly, responsibly cares for every aspect of his wife. He's not indifferent or callous. And then an eighth contrast, that love is emotionally mature and not immature. Emotionally mature. Verse 31, Paul is citing Genesis 2.24 when he says, For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and shall uh, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's interesting, that was written about Adam and Eve, and neither one of them had a mother or father. Uh, So it was written for our instruction that says we've got to be mature enough to leave mom and dad and establish a new family before we enter into marriage. And again, I've seen some husbands who expect their wives to treat them just like their mother treated them. 
Uh, he expects her to clean the house, to buy the groceries, to manage the money, uh, generally take care of him, and his job is to buy toys and go out and play with his friends. And that's not being a responsible, mature uh, husband. Um, you have to take the lead and not be uh, just acting like a child, but rather taking responsible, mature leadership in the home. A ninth contrast, love is a permanent commitment and not a temporary arrangement. We saw that last time, but the word be joined to in verse 31 points to this permanent, lifelong, covenant relationship. And marriage creates this new identity of head and body, one flesh together. And uh, that means... I advise couples, remove two words from your vocabulary, divorce and separation. Because a lot of couples in the heat of an argument threaten divorce. As a, that, that's just out of bounds. You don't go there. Um, you know, never threaten to leave. Because as we've seen, marriage isn't just about our happiness. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. And thankfully, our Savior will never leave nor abandon us. It's a great promise we have in Hebrews 13.5, where the author says, He himself, referring to our Lord, has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So it's a permanent commitment. And then final contrast, love is a growing and exclusive intimacy and not a casual relationship. Again, in verse 31, citing Genesis 2.24, Paul lays the foundation that Moses gave us, that marriage is a a one-flesh relationship. And God instituted marriage between a man and a woman, not, as we've seen in our culture lately, between two people of the same sex, which the Bible says, is an abomination to God. And it was between one man and one woman. And while God in the Old Testament tolerated polygamy, I defy you to find a single example of polygamy where there was a happy marriage. Uh, It just doesn't work. God ordained Adam and Eve. He ordained one man and one woman together for life. And that's his plan. The one flesh refers primarily to the sexual union. And in a rather startling verse in 1 Corinthians 6.16, Paul says that even if a man has sex with a prostitute, he becomes one flesh with her. And I believe what he is saying is that there is something that God designed about that sexual relationship that even if it's a casual, uh, impersonal encounter, It creates an intimacy that God designed it to create. And God wants that intimacy to be within the boundary of a lifelong marriage covenant with one person. Anytime there is casual sex outside the bounds of marriage, it is not based on love. It is based on lust. And so God designs it to be within that covenant marriage. Um, Paul says in verse 32 that marriage is a great mystery. He says it's a picture 
of Christ and the church. And it's interesting in the Bible that the Bible says that a man knew his wife, and it's a euphemism for having sexual relations. And then it says that we know our Lord face to face. And so even in marriage, the sacredness of the sexual union is to picture how we are to know our Savior in an intimate, personal way. You know, Jesus makes a statement in Matthew that I've always kind of stumbled over where he says, in heaven, there won't be any marriage. And I've said to Marla, how can it be heaven if I can't be married to you? Because uh, I can't imagine it being happy if I can't be married to her. But the answer is this. Marriage is just a picture, a foretaste of the indescribable joy of being united to our heavenly bridegroom. And so in Revelation, we see that culmination of history when Jesus and the bride are joined at the marriage supper of the Lamb throughout all eternity. And so marriage just kind of gives us a little glimpse. If life can be this wonderful together as a couple, wow, how must it be someday to be with Jesus forever and ever in that relationship. And all of that to say this, it is paramount to guard sexual purity in marriage. That relationship should be sacred and guarded. And uh, as I said the last time, that means as a man, there's no room for looking at pornography, for lusting after other women. Your devotion has to be exclusively for your wife. Now, to sum up then, the marriage love, the Christ-like love that every husband daily should show his wife, and I encourage you to either memorize this definition or come up with a better one, but I think it comes right out of the text. It's a self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one loved. That's what it should be. J. Allen Peterson, a number of years ago, observed, he said, most people get married believing a myth that marriage is a beautiful box full of all the things that they've longed for, companionship, sexual fulfillment, intimacy, friendship. The truth is, he said, that marriage at the start is an empty box. You must put something in before you can take anything out. There's no love in marriage. Love is in the people. And people put it into marriage. There's no romance in marriage. People have to infuse it into their marriages. He says a couple must learn the art and form, the habit of giving, loving, serving, praising, keeping the box full. If you take out more than you put in, the box will be empty. Someone asked a woman who had been married to her husband for 60 years the best relationship advice she had, and she paused, and then she said this, don't be afraid to be the one who loves the most. Now, that's good advice both for wives and husbands, but especially I think that's good advice for us as husbands because the command is directed to you, husbands, verse 25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
And that's a lifelong process, but my exhortation to you and to myself is make sure you're working on it this week. Let's bow together. If you're here this morning and you've never responded to the love of God through Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches, as I read from Romans 5.8, we're all sinners, and yet Christ died for sinners. And he offers a pardon and eternal life to every sinner who will come to him, just as you are. You can't clean up your life first. You just come to Christ. And by his mercy, he washes you, he cleanses you, he brings you into an eternal relationship with himself when you trust Jesus. And you can express that in your heart, just saying, Oh Lord, I know I have sinned. I know I deserve your judgment. But I ask that you would be merciful in forgiving my sin through Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Dear Father, I pray for our homes, that where there is bitterness, blaming, anger, hurt, frustration, it would be replaced with the perfect love of Christ, that our homes would just radiate the love of Christ, self-sacrificing, caring, commitment, seeking the best for each other, that as husbands we would take the initiative in being that kind of a husband to our wives, but in all our relationships that love would permeate this church. And we ask it for your namesake and your glory. Amen.